0: Well, good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 5, if you would. Yes. Oh, yes. Children's church, ages 3 through 7. Thank you. I was going to pull out a grade, and I was sure I was going to be wrong. We were going to have high schoolers going back to children's church. Ages 3 years old through 7 years old. F- funnel out that way, if you would like, for children's church. We have a taker right on. All right, so you're opening to Ephesians chapter 5. And <clears throat> for those of you who know this passage, you'll know uh, how seriously I contemplated having a prayer service today, um, but decided not to, decided to go ahead with what the Lord had for us today. As, as one, uh, one pastor noted, you know, I'm a man, a husband standing up, telling a bunch of wives of their duty to submit to their husband. So, you know, what could go wrong? Right, so, so uh, we better entreat uh, the Lord this morning. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, as we come to your Word uh, this morning, we're very conscious of the fact that the message of your Word from beginning to end is countercultural. It is not the message we will hear in the news. It is not the message we will receive in the world. Uh, and yet, it's from you. It's from your Word. And so, uh, just like. Um, just like the truth of your uh, having created us, just like the truth of sin in our lives, just like the truth of the redemption of Christ, uh, we want to preach this truth as well. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to, uh, to think well to think clearly i pray that you would help me to communicate clearly lord our desire this morning is that we would understand your word and understand how it applies to our lives understand what it means for us what you're trying to convey to us and uh, and and what it means for our lives for our particularly this morning for our families uh, lord we trust you for that lord we ask that you by your spirit uh, would work in our hearts that uh, we would be free from distraction, the things that pop into our mind that would be distracting, that would cause us to wander off in our thoughts to somewhere else other than where we are right now, sitting at your feet, listening to the teaching of your word. I pray that you would uh, help us to put away those distractions in our minds, help us to to focus, to think clearly. I pray that you would be honored, that you would be lifted up, I pray that we would be built up and we would be strengthened from our time in your word this morning. Thank you for the singing. We love to sing praises to you, and 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 we saw last week that that's even part of what it means to be filled by the Spirit, involves singing praises to you, and so we rejoice that we get to do that. We pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Our passage this morning is verses 22, 23, and 24 of Ephesians chapter 5. And so we 're going to like I always like to do, build the context, try and understand where the passage fits, not just in the book itself but in the flow of thought of the Bible. Um, there are other truths that are being assumed here that we need to pull out and have before us and so uh, what I want to do is is look back really at at Ephesians chapter four and, ch- and chapter five a little bit, just to look at kind of kind of where we 've come from to to build some steam here and uh, Chapter Four and chapter Five are where Paul really begins to to apply the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's theology in 4, 5, and 6. Uh, but it's primarily located in 1, 2, and 3, and he begins to apply it. And He says, okay, in light of the fact that you've been redeemed in Christ by his gracious working, remember 2, 10 says, uh, 2 8, uh, 9, and 10 talk about the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's, it's his working uh, that, that makes it so that we can be saved. It's, it's his gracious working on our behalf, and because of his work in our lives, because he has uh, redeemed Christians from the, the world of darkness and and brought them into to the kingdom of his beloved son therefore it has some implications for how we walk we are we are new now we are alive now we used to be dead when we were in sin now we're alive we should walk as those who are alive walk as light as children of light not not like we used to when we were in the world when we were when we were lost before we knew christ right not as the gentiles do is the way he puts it in this passage and so it has some implications put off the old self, right? Put off dishonesty, put off put off sexual immorality, put off those kind of things, and instead put on uh, Christ. Really, is what he's talking about. And we looked last week at uh, chapter five, verses fifteen through twenty-one, and we looked at at what it means. Uh, sort of the example he gave of alcohol when he talked about, you know, you can, you can get get drunk with alcohol, uh, or and he says, don't do that, but instead be filled by the Spirit, that it would be the Spirit who's the one who is influencing our lives, that it would be the Spirit of God who's the one filling us up with the, all the fullness of God, that we, would, that we would walk in obedience to him, that we would redeem the time, remember he talked about that, because the days are evil, time is ticking by quick, and we don't know when the end is. And, uh, and those who are in charge of this world, I don't mean kings and, and those who are, who are in that authority, but I mean spiritually those who are in charge of this world, talking about the evil one, uh, the enemy, and, and his minions uh, who are in charge in this world, they influence the world horribly, right? And so we need to take every opportunity we can with the gospel particularly, right? So we need to take advantage of the time. We need to redeem the time is the way he puts it. And don't be drunk with wine for this is debauchery. Remember, it leads to, it leads to those sorts of things that he talked about earlier on in chapter 5. The sexual immorality, the impurity, the coarse language, all that kind of stuff. Right? It leads to those sorts of things. Don't, don't be drunk with wine, That's where it heads. Don't do that. But instead, be filled by the Spirit. And where does it lead? Where does it head? Well, we we looked at several things last week, right? Uh, We looked at uh, verse 19 there. He says, be filled with the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. and and uh, singing and making melody uh, to the Lord with all of our hearts. So it affects the way we communicate with each other. It affects the way we communicate with God, right? Just like booze affects someone in certain negative ways, being filled by the Spirit affects our communication, our relationship in certain positive ways. Also, we talked a lot about thanksgiving. Giving thanks, right? Uh, always and for everything. Th- those are pretty broad terms. Not sometimes and for some stuff that you really liked. Right? Giving thanks always and for everything. That's hard. It's very easy for me to say. It's very hard to do, right? Giving thanks always, right? And then finally, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So these are some of the things that, that result from or come out of us being filled by the Spirit, right? And so they're, 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 they're the consequences in our lives. It's the result of the Spirit's influence in our lives. That that it changes the way we talk to each other, changes the way we relate with God, uh, both in singing and giving Him praises, but also in giving Him thanks, which changes the way we relate to everything around us, and then also in submitting to one another, out of reverence for Christ. We spent a brief time last week talking about what it means to uh, to submit. To one another out of reverence for Christ. But really, but before I get to submission, which of course is the first word in your title today. But before we get to that, I, I want to back up a little bit and hit something that really I didn't talk about last week that I should have. It was asked in our, in our connect group. Okay. So being filled by the spirit has great benefits. Uh, obviously it's what the Lord wants us to do. It's God's influence in our lives. So how do we do that? How do you be filled by the spirit? Right, And so we had a really good discussion in our group about, about how that happens, about how we can do that. And, and uh, <clears throat> I want to note, first of all, like we talked about briefly last week, and we talked about it in our group, that it's a passive command, right? There are passive verbs and there are active verbs. Uh, an active verb is where the subject of the verb is doing the action of the verb. So if I throw a ball, right, that's me doing the action of throwing a ball, You can say the same sentence a little bit differently. You can say the ball was thrown, right? And so did the ball do its own throwing? No, but it's the subject of the verb. It's being thrown by an outside agent. In this case, it would be me. So the ball was thrown by me. Now, who cares about grammar except me and a couple of teachers in here? Probably nobody. But why that's important is because this is a passive command. He says, be filled by the spirit. That's similar to talking to the football and say, be thrown Right? You can look at me and say, Brennan, throw the ball. Okay, I can do that. But look at the ball and say, be thrown. How, how is the ball supposed to do that? Even if the ball were an animate object and it's not, of course. How is it going to fulfill a passive command? Well, we have these in Scripture. This is not entirely uncommon. And so what, what I want us to think about when we're talking about how to be filled by the Spirit is, first of all, it is a passive command, so you can't just make it happen. You can't twist God's arm and then pow, it happens. Or you can't do the right things and you say, see, God, I've, I've, I've got my checklist done. Now you have to fill me by your spirit. That's not the way it works, right? Uh, he's the one in charge. He does what he wants, right? But from our perspective, there are certain things that we can do to prepare the soil, in a sense, for God's filling, for God's, for God's work in our lives. And how do we do that? That's, that's really our part. And that's, that's kind of a question just leading into our topic today. Just a couple of passages I, I, I want to point us to. A parallel to this one is Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians 3.16 talks about uh, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He continues with the same same wording even that he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5. And so he says, how do you do that? In that? In that passage, he doesn't talk about, Uh, be filled by the spirit he says let the word of christ dwell in you richly and so how do you do that well of course you 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 read the bible you spend time in the bible you think about what's in the bible you let it dwell in you richly right don't just memorize the verse but really think about what it means and think about "Ah, but the pastor talked last week about this and i heard this from from the word and and you're thinking about those sorts of things right and that's what's going on in your mind. Is you're letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You're thinking about what the gospel means in your life and in these situations that you face and all those things. You're letting it bounce around in your mind. You're letting it uh, dwell in your mind richly. Similarly, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, he talks about those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Living according to the Spirit is <clears throat> very similar to being filled by the Spirit. And so, how do you do that? Well, you set your minds, he says here in, in Romans 8:5, he says, Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Right? So, it's a similar idea, right? So, it's, it's that you're thinking about the things of God. You're camping on, dwelling on, ruminating on, meditating, is the biblical word, on the things of God, the things of the Spirit. His, his Word, the Gospel, uh, ministry, those like that that kind of realm, and you and you meditate on that, and you make that what goes on in your mind. Does that mean God has to fill you by His Spirit with when that happens? No, it's His choice. But we've prepared the field, right? The soil is is prepared, and so He very often will do that, and that's when He will fill us. And so, for our part, how do we be filled by the Spirit? Well, Colossians three sixteen and Romans eight five. Keep His Word in your mind. Think about it. Think about the things of the Spirit. Think about those things. Dwell on those things. Let those things captivate you. And the result very often will be He will fill you by His Spirit. Resulting in singing to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks to Him and submitting to one another. Right. So that's going to be the result. So... that's a little aside there, but I thought it was was, uh, something we should have talked about more last week and was a great discussion in our group. I wanted you guys to be up to speed on that. So he says there, there are various consequences, there are various results, there are various parts or aspects or working out of being filled by the Spirit. And the last of which there is in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we talked briefly about what it means to submit. I want to camp on that a little bit this morning. Submission is a, is an interesting notion, but basically it's that you place yourself under the authority of another and you do so willingly. You, you know, as, as parents, sometimes you subject your children, right? So you, you place them under your authority. You're doing the placing and it may or may not be, you know, by their own will, right? But in, in, in the relationship within the church, particularly amongst adults, uh, what he's talking about here is willingly placing yourself under the authority of another, Right? It always has in mind this idea of an ordered relationship. It's not chaos. right? It's not just you know, uh, everybody in some weird chaotic kind of relationship. It has, it has in mind some sort of an ordered relationship so that somebody is the authority and somebody is submitting to them. Right? So that's the idea of submission. It's the idea of authority. It's always an ordered relationship. And so, um, so that's, that's the idea of submission there. Okay. Well, so he says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for, for Christ. And so submitting to one another, what does that mean? That's, a, that's a, you submitting to me and me submitting to you. And it, is, it, is that what that means, right? And there are people who definitely think that that's what's in view here in this in this passage is, is our relationship with one another, meaning that I am thoughtful of you and considerate of you and, and I will do what's, what's your good, right? Who would disagree with that? Nobody would disagree with that. Right, But I don't think that's what he's talking about here in 521 and and following. He's not talking about this kind of relationship of kindness and thoughtfulness with one another. He absolutely believes that, and I think he teaches that in this passage, just not in this part. That's the way we relate to each other. But what he's talking about is not a mutual submission, meaning every single individual in here submits to every single other individual in here. It's not that idea of one another. It's what he's talking about here is submitting to those who are the proper authority. And in a group like this, that kind of means one another because some are in authority over others and, and there ends up being this kind of submission kind of, kind of a structure put together. Some are in authority over others and we properly submit to those. And so that's what he means by one another. Submitting to one another. So to summarize all of that idea from from verse 21. And the reason I do that is not just because I really don't want to get into verse 22, but but it's because I want to build this proper concept of what submission is and is not particularly in this passage. Because verse 22 is a hinge. He's been talking about one thing, and right in verse 21, he hinges into the next conversation, which he's going to go into in 22. And so we need to get a good grip on this. So to summarize, submission to one another here. In this passage, verse 21 means submission to the the proper authorities that exist among you. Talking about within the church relationship. He's not talking about us and governing authorities and that's not what he's talking about, submission to the, you know, to the law and things. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about within the church. Now, what's interesting is that he could have and in other places he does go into, okay, so that means if you're submitting to proper authorities, we need to be in submission to the elders of the church. We need to be submission, in submission to the leaders of the church and he could have done that but in this passage he doesn't. In this passage, he instead starts focusing on the household, the building block of the church and really the building block of society And so he's gonna, he's gonna spend the next couple of paragraphs talking about, okay, what is that submission to one another, submission to proper authorities in ordered relationships? What does that look like within the church context? And he's gonna zero in on the household. Now the household nowadays is different than the household at that time. The household at that time consisted of a husband and a wife and their kids and the, and the servants. Right? And so it was all kind of, it was all kind of a household. They had, they had, you know, owned slaves and things like that. And this, and the whole thing was considered their household. Right? It was almost like their business. Almost like you would think of a business. Right? But it's, uh, but it, that's the way they defined it. So he's going to talk about submission within a household. Right? So, with all that in mind, kind of, building the background, trying to understand what submission is, what our context is in this passage. Let's look at uh, chapter 5 and verses 22, 23, and 24 for this morning. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, To their husbands. Alright, so we're talking about wives submitting to their husbands. So point one here in your outline is to your own husbands, right? Underline that word own, right? To your own husbands. It's a word there that he's trying to clarify that not every wife submits to every husband, right? I have one wife, she submits to me, she doesn't submit to any other husband. No other wives in that way submit to me, right? That's what he's trying to make clear. So he's not saying, women, you're second tier. And submit to men who are first here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife, the way it ought to be biblically, right? So, point A there, a note to single women. A note to single women. For those of you who are not wives, what does that mean? To whom do you submit? Do you submit to the men around you, generally? Do you submit to husbands around you, generally? what does this mean for unmarried women? Well, this passage isn't talking to unmarried women. And so he's not saying that all women, particularly those who aren't married should submit to all men. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about within a household, right? And the household of a single woman is entirely different than a household of a married family with kids and, and servants and all that kind of stuff. Right? And so that's not what he's talking about. A note to single women, uh, how, how to, how to understand this passage. Well, uh, really, um, depending upon the age of the single woman and where she lives and stuff like that, she might be in submission to, to her dad. That, that would be a very proper thing. And I, I think in our culture, we, we kind of jump away from that pretty quickly. And, and I think in the biblical mindset, there would be a much longer period of time where a single woman would be in submission to her father probably until she was married and then would be in, in submission to, to her husband. But in our culture, um, that's, uh, obviously that's not what we hear too often. We, we kind of move away from that. But I think we need to feel that tension that there should be a proper submission, particularly of children, and then, and then when young women, as they grow older, submission to their dads. He's, he's the authority that God has given. And we'll, we'll look at, at uh, what, why God might have done it this way as we go on. But this is not saying that all women, single women, should be in submission to men around them. That's not the case. Right? I, I don't expect other women, uh, single women or married, to submit to me in, in that kind of relationship. I have, I have a wife, she submits to me, that's it. right? Now, when we talk about church structure and leadership, and that's a different kind of situation, but in this household setting, it's not at all what he's talking about. All right, so first of all, that note to single women. Second of all, to all men... Are all women to submit to all men? Of course not. That's not at all what he's talking about. That brings with it the idea of of an inferiority somehow of of women to men, and that's not in his mind. Right? I think um, when you hear this kind of conversation, or you maybe run across this passage, or if you were to Google this, it would be very interesting to see what your results might be about people's conversation. And there's a real common thought floating around in, in our culture, in our day and age, is that, that Christianity is really just about keeping women down. And see, this is evidence of it. Look, have you read Ephesians 5.22? It's the worst thing ever, right? And so you have this kind of idea in, in our world that's saying, this is, this is men subjecting women, this is us oppressing women, and, and women need to break free of that. When, in fact, if you look at history you'll see that there's never been another organization, another religion, another movement that has been more honoring to women than Christianity. You know, if if, if we just compare the, the treatment of, of women in biblical Christianity, Christianity has been misused, of course. If we compare the treatment of women in biblical Christianity to the treatment of women according to the Quran and, and look at the difference, night and day difference, Right? We get fed a lot of a lot of uh, uh, incorrect, untrue, unhelpful, and uh, harmful information from from our world that would make claims. So now it gets interesting. Point C to an imperfect or to a perfect man. Did I, does does yours say to an perfect man? In-perfect. Imperfect. I have a typo in mine. I was hoping it wasn't in yours because it turns out that I know some of your husbands. Okay. And uh, I know me, and so I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, I haven't met the perfect husband yet, okay? I haven't met him yet. And so what that means is, this puts you in an interesting spot, a tough spot. But does he say in this passage, wives, submit to your husbands in as much as they are perfect, or to the degree that they are doing a great job as a husband? No, it doesn't. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, right? That's difficult. That's where it gets really difficult. And so many of you are sitting there thinking, but if you knew what my husband was like, well, I, you know, like I said, I know a lot of your husbands and I have an idea what they're like <laughs> and I know what I'm like and it can't be easy to submit to me, right? But you feel that tension? Of course you feel that tension. Pause that for just a second and let's let's jump into next week. All right, so women are in a, in a tough spot at this point right now. Right, They're, they've, they've been they've been told by Paul to submit to their imperfect husband, right, who has flaws and warts. All right, that is a tough. I, th- that's just tough. Okay, let's go forward to next week and look at the command to husbands. Let me summarize it. All right? you'll notice that this week is three verses. Next week is many verses. Right, wives, here's this tough command to you, men. All right. Here, page three, page, you know, like he goes on, right? When he's, when he's talking to men and I'll summarize it for you. Husbands die for your wives. I think that's a legit summary of next week's message. So some of you might want to, you know, make sure your husbands are here next week. Cause you know, they really should hear that. But that's the summary of what next week is like. That's not easy either, okay? Just saying, husbands and wives uh, both have a tough row to hoe, okay? And uh, um, so we'll keep that one in mind, and I look forward to next week. And I, I have heard comments about Father's Day. I remember having a conversation with Dale White about Father's Day messages, right? Mother's Day messages are so sweet, and they're adoring, and we love our moms, and we praise them, and we clap for them, and all this kind of stuff. And then it comes Father's Day, and we lower the boom, right? Dad, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing that. That's not the way we want to do Father's Day. But it's not Father's Day next week, all right? So, so I'm free. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about husbands next week. All right. Your husband is imperfect. You knew that. You knew that when you married him, but it really didn't matter when you first married him because, you know, he's who he is and, you, and it's awesome, right? And then you got married and you realized, ah, he didn't change when I married him. And these things really are annoying. I thought they were cute before we got married. Now I married him and they're annoying. Right, and it's the same thing, okay? Your husband is imperfect. But he doesn't give us an escape clause here. He doesn't say, so long as you have a really good husband. So long as your husband really toes the the line. So long as he does this thing and this thing. He doesn't say that. Right? Wives, submit to your husbands. We're not done talking about that. We'll continue talking about it and i think if you will flip over with me to first peter chapter 3 first peter chapter 3 that's to the right a few books first peter chapter 3 and there's a very interesting conversation about how a wife is to submit to a husband in this case who's not even a believer not only is he not a great husband he's not even a believer okay listen to this first peter chapter 3 starting in verse 1 likewise wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word that is even if some are not believers they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." That passage there gives a lot of hope to a woman who's in a situation where she's married to to a husband who um, is either disobedient to the word or is uh, just an unbeliever. There's a lot of hope in there. Notice she's not wrestling him to the ground verbally and going to outthink him and outsmart him and and reason him into the kingdom. Right? It's not going to happen. Notice that she's not belittling him into the kingdom. Right, She's not nagging him into the kingdom. She's not outsmarting him into the kingdom. She's not twisting his arm. Those things will not work unless God does a miracle and overrides what you're doing. Because that's what it would be. But it's her submission to him, her gentle and quiet spirit that somehow wins him to the Lord as he sees the beauty of her inward person. And he is brought to Christ because of that. Is there power in that? It's not the kind of power of wrestling him down, of outsmarting him. It's not the kind of power of having a stronger force of will than him. It's the kind of power of a, a, a beautiful inward spirit. And it's powerful. When all of those other things fail, they're hopeless. There is power in that. And he can be one without a word, it says. Of course, she's going to be speaking the gospel to him. She's going to be telling the truth and those sorts of things. But what he means is she didn't somehow, by her words, make it happen. She wasn't insistent upon uh, she's going to argue him into the kingdom or whatever, but it was her spirit that won him over. That is a lot of power. So, if wives, if you are in that situation, you have an unbelieving husband or you have a husband who, who is disobedient to the word, as he puts it there, Don't, I I don't want you to feel like, and Peter certainly doesn't want you to feel like you're in a hopeless situation. You have a lot of power. So bookmark first Peter three, go back to it and dwell on it. That's where the power is. So yes, you're married to an imperfect man and, and, and you're to submit to an imperfect man. Now in that kind of situation, if, if a wife has an unbelieving husband their well, might be that the husband wants the wife to do something or go along with something that is against God's commands, that is against what God would have her do. So she has allegiance first to God, just like the disciples. You remember the apostles early on in the book of Acts? And they were instructed, don't you be preaching this Christ. They had been arrested, they go out, next day, what do they do? Preach Christ, Right? And the apostles told them, the ones who arrested them, told them, look, who should we obey, you or God? We're going to obey God, right? It's the same for a wife in a tough situation like this where she has an unbelieving husband. If the husband is wanting her to do something that is against God's commands, of course, she will respectfully decline. She's going to obey God. She's going to submit to him. That's where her first allegiance lies, right? So... She is not to be mindless. There's nothing mindless about this. Nor is she somehow not culpable for her actions anymore. Right? She's going to continue to walk in obedience to God. And that brings us to our second point here. Submission to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So there's a a point here. Point A is that 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 submission to the Lord is primary. Right? You have... You have an order in your mind, uh, your priorities, to whom do you submit first? Well, submission to the Lord is primary. Your husband comes next, Okay, but the Lord is primary. And so when you have that decision where he wants you to do something that is wrong, that God does not want you to do, you respectfully submit to God instead that 's what you're going to do you, you won 't be made to sin in that way this submission to the Lord is primary it 's also the pattern right when he says here, "Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, he means in a similar way as you submit to the Lord, submit to your husband now this is this is interesting because the husband is so far. In fear to the Lord. Of course, he's imperfect. We talked about that, right? He he may very well not be as smart as you. Okay, that happens a lot. Okay, <laughs> yeah, like I said, I know some of your husbands, and uh, and I know some of the wives, and so it, it's it, this is not uh, this is not a mindless thing. This is not putting the woman in a in a place where she can't think or she can't involve uh, be involved in a conversation or things like that. Think about it this way. How do you determine what the Lord's will is for you, right? If you read it in scripture and it says, don't get drunk with wine, I will tell you what God's will is for you. Don't get drunk with wine. All right. That's pretty clear. The majority of our decisions in life, however, are not that simple, right? Sometimes do I make this decision or do I, do I make this other decision, right? Do I go this way? Do I go that way? We have a lot of those kind of decisions in, in life and we, how do you determine what God's will is? Probably for none of us do we hear an audible voice from God, go left. Okay, God, we don't hear that, right? Probably, you know, if you do, please come talk to me because I, I probably want to document that and, you know, it would be very interesting and probably a lot of good counseling would come out of that. <laughs> but no, when we're, when we're in conversation with God, and that's really what it is, about what his will for us is, there's give and take. Now, what do I mean by that? Am I talking God into something? Of course not. He knows what he wants me to do. It's that conversation with him though where I say is it this? Maybe it's this and I make my positives and negatives list and my you know my pluses and minuses column and I think about all that kind of stuff and God says yeah but what about this? And and so what he's doing is leading me in conversation to the point where I realize after a lot of prayer and conversation with him I come to the point where oh it really seems like God wants me to go left. Now was that process mindless? No, it wasn't. And this is talking about me in submission to God, who is all-knowing, right? It was never that I was trying to talk him around in my way, hopefully. There probably are times when we do that. But our conversation is him informing us and us talking together. God, what about this? I've really thought about this, and this would be a great thing. No, what about this, Brennan? Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, okay? And so it's sort of this conversation. Well, similarly, submission of a wife to her husband. There is no mindless instruction. The husband says, go left okay, I'll go left, right? Now, if you're driving through Reno and your wife doesn't know where she's going and you do, just say go left. That's fine. But what I mean is when you're trying to determine what decision your family is going to make, how do you do that? Does the husband just say, well, I've decided we're going to go left. And then that's it, right? Maybe in some relationships that'd be okay. Okay, that wouldn't work out in mine and probably not in yours. That's not the way it is. What happens is we enter into conversation with one another. The difference here is that I'm not all-knowing, and I don't know. I, I may not know what's best. Very often in this conversation we have with each other, I want to do A, she wants to do B, or some other version of A or whatever, we enter into discussion with each other. And we talk, and we point, counterpoint, and we, and we pray together, and we move along. And after a while, very often, I find that I've come around to her position. Because hers was the better position. It happens very often, right? Sometimes she comes to mind. But what I mean is, she has submitted to my leadership... But it was never mindless. If you know Stephanie, you know it was never mindless. I told her I wouldn't tell stories on her, so I won't pull out any specific instances, however tempting that might be. But that's the pattern. That's what this submission kind of looks like. In the end, though, I know when we make the decision, whether it was B, which is what she wanted to do, or A, which is what I want to do, or D, I don't know, Whatever it is, in the end, when we make the decision, the responsibility lies with me. That's the end. That's, that's the final step of all this for me as the husband. Is that if, if we choose B, which was her desire, and it goes south, and it turns out six months later, man, I was, we should not have done that. As the leader, I'm not going to say, you told me such and such, and you talked me into such and such, and No. She submitted to my leadership and I said, okay, we're going to do B. We do B and it goes south, that's on me. You see the difference? Now I'm kind of edging into next week a little bit, but that's the pattern there. I I, I don't want, uh, I, I think there would be, I want us to get a proper understanding of what this submission looks like. Because in the world you will not hear an accurate description of this passage or of what Christians think about uh, submission of wives to husbands. Do you remember several years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention? They decided that wives should submit to their husbands. Wow, it was a big decision that the convention came to. And it was in the news that they decided this. And they got all kinds of flack. And I thought, the Southern Baptist Convention probably didn't even decide anything. They read from here and they got flack for it, right? And so I want us to have a good understanding, an accurate understanding of what this kind of submission is. So submission to the Lord is primary, submission to the Lord is the pattern, and submission to the Lord includes this piece. I won't camp here too long, but if a wife is, she loves Jesus, she's following after Jesus. She shares the gospel with people. She does this. She's, she's walking. She's trying to learn. She, she's growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And she is unwilling to submit to her husband. She has a piece that's missing. There's still something lacking, okay? She has an area she needs to grow and she needs to mature in. Submission to the Lord includes this piece. That's point C. And finally, headship is the reason. I've only covered one verse. Man. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'll move quickly through this. There, there's a debate amongst uh, evangelical feminists and uh, evangelical complementarians, people who are on different sides. Christians and evangelicals, but they view this very differently. There's a debate about what does headship mean? Does head mean authority or does head mean source? Head means authority. I'll just cut to the chase on that head means authority. It doesn't mean source. Okay. And so they've, most of us, 98% of us don't care about that, but two, two percent of us cares about that, right? It means authority over. And so so the husband has been put in headship or in a position of authority over the wife is it because he's smarter That <laughs> boy <laughs> I agree <laughs> It's not because he's smarter Right, It really goes back to the creation order is uh, is the point. If you look back and think back about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, uh, I'll give you a piece of hermeneutical advice when you're trying to understand Scripture. If something stems from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, or Genesis 3, comes from that, it means it is not uh, the result of sin in the world. It is not a twisted version of how it should be. If it comes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it's how it should be. Okay? Now, when we talk about the creation of men and women, we talk about the creation of Adam and Eve, who was created first. He made Adam first. and he looked at him and said, not good for man to be alone, right? And there's a process going through there, right? And he he says, okay, so it's not good for man to be alone, so I'll make a helper. And so he makes all these animals. He brings animals to him. And Adam's looking at him, and he's naming the giraffes, and he's naming everybody that goes by. And he sees that there's not one there suitable for him. There's not one of them that was like him. And so God makes a helper suitable for him from his own side and forms Eve. And thus we have the first couple, right? And so you've got the man created first. And it's interesting, when you look at the instruction, um, remember in the garden, don't eat from the fruit of that one tree. Eat from any other tree that you like, but don't eat from the fruit of that one tree. To whom did he give that message? To Adam. Presumably, Adam passed that on to Eve. Right? But then you have the, the fruit of that one tree, uh, being eaten and that's the, the sin entering into the picture and, and that whole thing. And so where did that breakdown happen? That's a discussion for another day. But, but this idea of the husband being the head of the wife goes back to creation. It, it's not because, because we are somehow psychologically superior or more able to lead. I don't believe that at all. It's not that men are smarter than women. I absolutely know that is not the case. I, I don't know exactly why God did this, but I know that He created man first and then He created Eve to be His helper. And so somehow she is his his helpmeet, helping him. And that's the design. This isn't the screwed up design that comes after Genesis three after the sin has entered the picture. This is how he made things. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that he created Adam and then he created Eve to be the helpmate, the helpmeet for Adam, in light of that he says, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church. You have Christ in authority over the church and in a similar way you have the husband being in authority over the wife. He's making the comparison right here. And... Uh, as Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what is headship? It's authority over. How is it a reason? Well, it goes back to creation. That's the way we were designed. It's the way God made us. I can't explain why. Right? I, I can't give you any psychological reasons. I can't give you any intellectual reasons. I can't give you any other reasons. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are people who can figure that out, but I, I haven't done so yet. But it's the way God made us. And that will never change. So how is it a reason? Well, he made us this way. Is it just old-fashioned? Well, the story, the truth of that comes from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And so it's, it's unchanging. It will never change, regardless of what happens in our culture. Now, some of you are saying, Brennan, he didn't point to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but he's going to next week. Continuing the passage, he's going to talk about it, right? When he, he's going to point to uh, the way he created us as being the legit, le, um, uh, helping us understand or being a reason or the foundation for these two paragraphs. So, headship is the reason. Headship is authority. It's a reason because God created us this way. It's not just old fashioned because God created us this way. It's not the result of the culture in the 18th century. Or it's not the result of the culture in, at, at 1000 AD or the result of any cultural developments. It's the result of the way God made us before sin entered the picture and screwed things up. Point four, as the church submits to Christ, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I want to I call to your attention. The beginning of verse 24, mine says now, some of yours might say, and, or something like that. It should, it should say, but. Now, it's an awkward, in English, it's awkward. But it's a very strong adversative. And what Paul means to do here is say, he's just said these things about Jesus, right? He says, for the the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. And so, lest husbands think, wow, that's pretty cool, right? It's uh, his church, uh, his body, and is himself its savior. Wow, I must be the savior of my wife, right? He starts the next sentence with, but meaning entirely different from that you are not the savior of your wife but instead as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit everything to their husbands so he's drawing a contrast i'm not my wife's savior i don't now we're going to get in next week to mean to look at what it means to die for her right but that's i don't have that that role but how, so the question is how does the church submit to Christ first of all lovingly We submit to Christ because we love him. Because we love him. Not out of, uh, not, not begrudgingly. Not because someone twists our arm. But because we love Jesus and so we submit to him. And so it's similar for a wife in submission to her husband. Because she loves him. She'll submit to him. He doesn't have to twist her arm. It doesn't say, husbands, put your wives in subjection. Get her in a headlock until she submits to you. No, the instruction is to the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. So lovingly, first of all, intelligently, right? We talked about the conversation that goes on in making decisions together. There's nothing mindless about, about a wife's submission to her husband. Just like there's nothing mindless about the church's submission to Christ. We want to understand. In the end, we will submit to what he says, for sure. But we want to understand why he says certain things, the way he says certain things, what he really means right we want to know it's it's intelligently we try to understand and it's similar with the way a wife submits to her husband so lovingly intelligently respectfully He's going to finish the next paragraph, which is a big, long paragraph, by the way. It's 144 words in Greek. This this is like 50 in in Greek, right? It's 144 next week to the men, and he finishes it by coming back around to the women, and look at the end there, verse the end of verse uh, verse 33. He says, "And let the wife see that she respects her husband." It's a respectful submission. It's not a begrudging. Blah, blah, blah. No, it's a it's a it's a respectful situation, right? Now, as a husband, just a little bit of testimonial here. Over the years, I've probably become more respectable, first of all. But I have, I have benefited from my wife's respect. I love it. I cherish it, and I grow under it. I can feel myself being getting stronger, standing more upright, ready to take on the world because my wife respects me. A buddy could say the same kind of things to me, and it would have a positive effect. My wife says them in sweet I'm ready to take on the world. Right? That's just truth. Husbands, you know that. Lovingly, intelligently, respectfully, and in everything. Yee. <laughs> you saw that one coming, didn't you? Look at the end of that. So also wives, verse twenty four, should submit in everything to their husbands. Actually, in everything comes at the end of the at the end of the verse there in Greek, but in everything. Now that doesn't mean in every like I don't, I don't mean in every little, no, we're not going to McDonald's, we're going to Burger King. That's not what I mean. What it means is in every realm, in all of your life, in the broad spectrum of your life, from these little decisions to these big decisions to everything in between, from personal decisions to big public decisions, from job decisions to family decisions to child disciplining decisions, all that stuff, in every aspect, in every area, in every realm. Okay, this isn't just regarding one particular aspect or some that are easier than others to submit in. What I want to conclude with is this. This is a... uh, We looked at 1 Peter 3 and talked about the power that a woman has in submitting to her husband, even an unbelieving husband, the power that she has to win him over to Christ. Not with forceful words, not with the best argument, not with any of that kind of... Not, not, with a, not with a strong will she's going to win him over, none of that. But with a gentle and quiet spirit, with an inward beauty of submission to the Lord and to her husband, she will win him over. There's power in that. And I want to say that there is very great power in building a family, in building the kind of family that you want to have when wives are in this kind of submission to their husbands. This kind of submission please don't hear what I'm not saying. We're not talking mindlessness. There is an aspect of obedience in there somewhere, but I'm not talking about, no, we're going, there, not here. Right? It's, it's, it's a conversation. In the end, the decision is mine, the responsibility is mine. So again, if we choose option B, which was Stephanie's option, it became my option when we chose to do it. I take the heat. It never comes back on her. And if one of you says, Brendan, you really shouldn't have chosen option B, I'll say, I, you know, it was, it was a bad decision I made. I will never tell you it was her idea. right?" So she's protected in that submission. She's in a, in a, in a protected situation. And she has caused our family, and wives will cause their family to flourish. Cause husbands to be, to be built up and strengthened in biblical Christian ways the way you want your husband to be built up and strengthened with this proper kind of submission. And for some of you, It may even win your husbands out of unbelief into faith in Christ by this kind of submission. That's a lot of power and that's a lot of hope. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning is that kind of hope. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us truth. If we were to have concocted the way a family would be built we probably would not have come up with this idea. And yet you tell us it's the way you've designed us. You tell us it's what's best for us. I believe you. We believe you. Lord, uh, as, as we've talked about this, there have been things that, that I've said that have been challenging. There have been thoughts that have been brought up in people's minds from things I've said that have been challenging uh, probably uh, some are are angry, maybe even at your, at your word here, or maybe angry at me, or or maybe just angry at ourselves. I don't know. But Lord, we trust your word and we trust you, and so I pray that this uh, this afternoon, even and this week, that you would help us to think on these things, that this word would dwell in us richly, that it would bear fruit and we would see your wisdom in creating us the way you have, that husbands and wives would begin to look at each other and relate to one another in in different ways than they have in the past. Lord, I pray that you would bring great flourishing, bring great growth and maturity and joy in our church and in our families. Thank you for your word and your spirit and our time here today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.